Good morning. Our uh, scripture reading today will be from uh, John chapter 4, uh, verses 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galatians welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Uh, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed that, uh, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went to his, and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them uh, the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew uh, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Welcome to Midlands Church. Um, We are going to continue our sermon series in the book of John this morning as we look at John chapter 4 that we just read. Um, And so we're about halfway through um, our spring series of John. So this is not halfway through our series of John. That's going to be about a year and a half, two years long. So, uh, but we are going to take a break uh, come summertime, and we're going to look at either some more in-depth things, specific things in the book of John or elsewhere. Um, but for right now, we are going to uh, take a look back to, to what we have actually looked at in the book of John thus far and also look forward to his purpose statement. So if y'all remember, his purpose statement doesn't come until John chapter 20. So turn with me to that real quick. Um, If you have not already, you might want to bookmark this this part of his gospel, John 20, 30 through 31, unless you were raised in a home like my wife was, where you did Bible drill and you don't need to bookmark anything in the Bible because you know where everything is and you can get there in like two seconds. Um, if that's you, then don't worry about bookmarking it. But it says this, it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so what John is saying here, and we've looked at this before, but what John is saying here is that everything that I compile and everything that I put into this book, I put here for this purpose, that one, you would know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that everything from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the prophets is speaking of. He's the one that they are all looking towards. He is the Christ. He is the promised one. Not only that, but he is the very son of God, right? 
He's, he's saying not only is he the one who has come to save the world, he has come from heaven. He is equal in nature and in power to God. And we'll see that a little bit more in next week's passage. Um, but what he is trying to say here is, hey, this story that I'm going to include in my gospel that's not included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'm putting it here to emphasize the importance of believing these things because by believing these things, you would then have eternal life. John is telling us that Jesus is not just a philosopher who can give you some good and helpful wisdom, and he's not a teacher that you can just dismiss, and he's not just a moral example that you can follow. He is God. And every story that he puts in here is forcing us to answer this question at the end of it. Do you believe or are you going to continue in your unbelief? Every story. So let's look back through uh, John chapter 1 and all the way until our passage here today. So John chapter 1, he, he starts it off by saying that Jesus is equal to God. Jesus was the Word in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, uh, and by Him all things were made. So uh, Harper, we've started this thing with Harper um, called catechisms, if you don't know what those are. They're basically just question and answers about core doctrines of our faith. Um, and so we have these like young reformed catechisms that were, I think that's what they're called, um, that we're doing with her. And she has made it through three and we're super proud. And though her answers aren't necessarily like clearly audible, like they're like, it's almost like a, I don't know, not a, mur- she says it very loudly, but it's like undistinguishable of what she's saying, but she knows the answers, right? So the first question is, Harper, who made you? And she knows how to pronounce this. She says, God. And so, okay, all right, what else did God make? And she'll go, God made all things. It's like, okay, uh, that was good. And then we're like, okay, why did God make you in all things? She goes, this is like my favorite part, for its own glory. <laughs> it's like, okay, for his own glory. Yes, great. And so what John is trying to do here in the, in the beginning of this gospel is saying that not only is God the Father to be glorified that we saw all throughout the Old Testament, is that Jesus was also all throughout the Old Testament, and he is the same God who has made you for himself. Paul says this pretty clearly in Colossians 1, uh, where he says, by him all things were made, and they were also made for him. So you were made by Jesus for Jesus. This is something we want Harper to understand. This is something that we need to understand is that we weren't made by our spouse for our spouse or by our kids for our kids or by our employer for our employer and so on and so forth. We were made by God for God. John makes that very clear in the beginning of his gospel. And then he goes to John the Baptist where he's heralding him as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And some of John the Baptist's disciples went and left and followed Jesus because they believed that this were true. And then you fast forward to John chapter 3 where some of those disciples of John's uh, did not necessarily believe that that was true. And so, again, you're faced with this with this decision, this option. Do you believe or do you not believe? 
And then at the end of chapter 1, he sees uh, Nathaniel underneath a fig tree. And, he, and because of this, Nathaniel believes. And he says, surely you are going to see much greater things than this. But because I said this, you believe. And then he goes and he, and he shows them one of those things in, in John chapter 2 where at the wedding of Cana where he, where he turns water into wine and people believe upon him. And then it goes on into him purifying the temple where people believed upon the signs that he was doing. It says that in John chapter 2 verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And then he kind of further explains this in his conversation with Nicodemus, this uh, religious Pharisee who was very knowledgeable about all things scripture and was just honestly a very smart guy. And he has this conversation with him um, and, and he's explaining that belief upon my signs isn't what's going to save you. There's nothing that you can do that will save you. He equates it to those of, of a physical birth, a baby that is born of a woman. He says, you are going to have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait, so I'm entering my mother's womb a second time? And he's like, no, you weirdo, not doing that. You're going to be born by the Spirit. But you've got to understand, your participation in your first birth is what I'm trying to equate to your participation in your second birth. This is only a passive participation on our part. The Spirit chooses who he chooses. The wind blows where, he, where it blows. And, and Jesus is saying, unless you look to the Son of God, who is going to hang on a tree, just as the serpent in the wilderness healed those who were, who were made uh, ill because of the, the serpent's stings, unless you look to him, you will not have eternal life. And then Jesus has this not really altercation, but there's, there's a uh, kind of a split between John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus's ministry, and they're kind of in the same town. And so Jesus decides, okay, hey, for the time being, I'm going to go to Samaria. And so he goes to Samaria, and, um, and that's where he meets this woman at the well that we saw last week. And, and she comes to the well needing water. That's what she thinks. She needs water. And Jesus understands her actual need. He needs water as well uh, to quench his thirst. But he, he's not really concerned about that. He's more concerned with her. And so for the first time, this woman, even though she had five, six husbands, the first time she is actually truly and fully known by someone. And because of this, she believes not because of any signs or wonders that he does, but because he knew her and because he spoke to her, she believed. And then it goes on and it talks about how many Samaritans from that town, starting in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know 
that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not because of any signs or wonders that he did, but because they heard his message. They believed that he was the Savior of the world. These were, these were Samaritans. These were people who were outcasted by Jews. And this Jewish Savior comes to them and offers them eternal life. And they cling to it. Now we enter into our story today. And, and Jesus is fresh off of his first unqualified, unopposed, uniquely successful ministry experience, right? For two days, he was preaching and people believed. Now he comes to his own town. And it says this, after two days, he departed for Galilee. And, and John inserts this verse uh, 44 right here. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Okay, hold the phone. What in the world is going on here? So it seems at, at first glance, as you're reading this, that John is not just like mistakenly contradicting himself, but like immediately contradicting himself. He says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so Jesus, hey, he's going to come to his hometown and he's welcomed with like a parade and a party and people love him. And so John wants a question mark to kind of pop up in your head. He wants you to look a little bit deeper here to see why they're welcoming him. It's not because of who Jesus is and it's not because he's sent from God. It is simply because of his signs and his wonders. This is the same place that he came and he turned water into wine. And so they're wanting him to do it again. Not only that, but they're wanting to get some sort of validation out of this miracle worker who is from their hometown. All right, let me do a little social experiment. Who in here uh, has ever met a famous person? I'll let you define fame. Ever met a famous person, okay? Now, who in here uh, grew up with slash went to school with at some point in your life? You, it doesn't have to be like from toddler age, but maybe like you went to college with this person or, or high school or whatever. Who in here knows someone famous to that degree? Okay, one, two, three, okay. A little bit smaller number, right? Now, um, I also kind of sort of know someone who was famous, so uh, we do this often where it's like, hey, we want to cling to the fact that their fame and their success is somehow, like just because we interacted with them, somehow kind of our success. Um, so I did this uh, a few years ago, um, looking back on it, and I had somebody that I went to high school with, um, and he was in my same grade. We didn't necessarily get along. We played on the same basketball team, played the same position, constantly competed against each other for the starting spot our sophomore year. Um, and then like I, I would beat him one-on-one, -on -one -on -one, he'd beat me one-on-one, -on -one, and it'd go back and forth. And so we'd sometimes kind of share minutes on the court. Um, and then going into our junior year, I find out that he's transferring and I'm like, and my arrogance and pride thinking, okay, yeah, he just knows that he's not going to play over me this year. And so 
Little did I know, what actually happened was he grew about six inches, um, was <laughs> beginning to get recruited by D1 colleges. I was never recruited by D1 colleges. I got recruited by CIU, no offense um, to those at CIU. But that, that was my talent level, and then his was like way up there. He eventually went on to uh, play in the NCAA tournament, uh, and then he didn't get drafted, but he did sign an NBA contract with Bela Franklin's Philadelphia 76ers. Um, and so during that time, I was wanting him to succeed. And I, I just wanted him to become an all-star and all this stuff so that I could say, you know, I beat an NBA player in one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> so there's that. Even though he was 15 at the time and six inches shorter than he was in the NBA, but he didn't it kind of fizzled out. He's still kind of trying to make the league. But anyways, like it, it is in our nature when we're not super successful to want to somehow validate our own selves through the success of people that we might know. And that's exactly what's happening here in this passage, where these Galileans are, are opposing him, really, as the Messiah, but are welcoming him as a miracle worker. They don't want anything to do with the salvation that he's bringing. They don't want to repent and believe. They want to go on believing that they are God's chosen people. They want to go on believing these things, and then they want to see Jesus do a cool party trick. What John is doing is he is contrasting these, these Galileans, these Jews, with the Samaritans that they hate and with this, this man who, who serves a Gentile ruler. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, before we get into that, I kind of want to take a step back and, and think about these things that we face today in our church. You see, these, these characters that John is juxtaposing here is these people who think that they have salvation already because they are God's chosen people. And then these people like the Samaritans and this official who come to him in desperate need because they know that they need something. But these Galileans, they think that they already have it. And I think today we experience very similar things in our evangelistic efforts, right? Being in Columbia, South Carolina, um, the whole, the term Bible Belt doesn't necessarily mean much anymore, um, especially as we just continue to get older and continue to kind of move away from the 1980s and 70s. It's like that whole mindset of the Bible Belt is kind of becoming just this myth. But it's still true that in the South, there is essentially a church on every corner. And I think it is a, a good reflection as to the actual spiritual temperature of um, our area, our location. And it is that there might be a church on every corner, but those churches are frequently empty. And so 
with your coworkers, with your family members, with your friends that, that you might be trying to evangelize to, they might think that because they have some sort of affiliation with a church or an organization or they live a good, upright, moral life, that they somehow have eternal life. They don't, they don't need Jesus. And what it is, is what their, what their exterior is saying is that, hey, we look good and pristine, but once you open our doors, once you open our hearts, what you're going to see is emptiness, just like you see the emptiness in the pews of the churches on every corner. There is a, um, let's see here, um, I have lost the quote. Let me get to the quote real quick. Um, there is a writer who says this on the topic. He says, there are two ways of being a prophet. One is to tell the enslaved that they can be free. It is the difficult path of Moses. The second is to tell those who think they are free that they are, in fact, enslaved. This is the even more difficult path of Jesus. And so this is what we're challenged with today as a church is is not to back away from this, this bold message. There's a, there was a study um, from Ligonier Ministries back in 2018. So Ligonier Ministries was actually a ministry that R.C. Sproul and his church started up way back when. Um, and they did this survey where they asked these essential core doctrine questions to both believer, believers and non-believers in the U.S., um, and so they, they pulled the results based off of those who, who accepted like these core truths that, that God is three in one, that Jesus is the son of God, all these core truths, they would put those people who answered yes to those things in this evangelical category. And within that evangelical category, they asked this question. They asked, um, if someone sins does that mean that they are necessarily a bad person? Or do you think that everyone is good by nature? And 53% of evangelicals, so that's like if I cut this room in half and you guys all answered, yes, we believe that people are good by nature. And that is completely opposite of what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that Every single one of us are in desperate need of Christ. We're not good. We are bad. We are sinful. We are, we are heading towards condemnation, as it says in John chapter 3, after that discourse between him and Nicodemus. It says that those who do not already believe in him are already condemned. It is only by Christ and his righteousness that we have any, any hope to eternal life. And these Galileans, they, they don't see it that way. Now let's focus on the official for a second. Now, so this Greek word uh, for this character in the story is uh, basilikos. basilikos. Um, so it, it comes from the Greek word that means king, which is basileus. Um, and so what, what that is, is to say that he is a servant or some sort of hired help of the king, okay? 
So the official doesn't necessarily get you there, um, but this is what it's saying. This is what John is trying to tell you, is that he is a servant of the king. Now, who was the king in that territory at the time? King Herod of Antipas. Now, this is the man who beheaded John the Baptist. And this is the man who mocks Jesus during his trial and then sends him back to Pilate to be crucified. This is the man that this official is serving. And Jesus knows this. Jesus gets it. Jesus sees him for who he is. But he's a man who is in desperate need. And you can imagine him coming home from work one day and his wife meeting him at the door and saying, hey, honey, uh, nothing really to be worried about, um, but uh, little Andy, we'll say his name's Andy, um, little Andy is, is over there, and he, and he has a cough, like kind of, kind of running a temperature, nothing serious yet, but just wanted you to be aware. And so he comes in, and he asks his son how he's doing. Oh, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay. So, okay, we're not going to really worry about it. Um, tomorrow, when I'm on my way home, I'll, I'll ask the doctor to come with me, and then we'll take a look at it. And so he gets kind of moderately concerned as the night goes on, and he hears his son coughing and um, is woken up periodically. And then he goes back to work the next day, and the same thing happens, but he comes home, he gets the doctor, and all of a sudden his, his wife is at the door, and she is a lot more concerned. Um, you, can, you can kind of see the pain in her eyes as she's thinking about what her son looks like and, and, and is trying to communicate this to the doctor and uh, her husband. And the doctor comes in and he sees the, the little boy and, and he's kind of lost all color. He's, he's sweating profusely and coughing nonstop. And all of a sudden, within the span of a very short amount of time, this, this boy who was relatively healthy is now about to die, and the doctor turns and says, there's not much we can do. And so in this day and age, the father is, is put in a position of two different cho- cho- uh, excuse me, choices. Um, speaking like Harper, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he's, he's given these two different choices to either spend the last hours of, this son, of his son's life with him, by his bedside, or go and try and find any alternative to maybe get his son back to regular health. Um, And in that day and age, it was like 99% of the time, you're gonna stay with your son. There's just not much medicinal help, uh, not not many options out there. But you you can imagine he thinking these two options through and then remembering this story the story about this Galilean man who turned water into wine. And now he's 17 miles away from Cana in Galilee. And, and, and he's thinking, okay, let's see. So if, I, if our, our son makes it through the night, first thing tomorrow morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there and see if he's there. And if he's there, then, then maybe, just maybe, he could do something. That's what he does. He tells his wife, I'm leaving in the morning. He gets up and he goes, and it's about a six to seven hour trip. And so he meets him there on, in the seventh hour, which is one o'clock, right? And it's all uphill, so he gets to him, and, and he sees this big crowd that's welcoming Jesus into their hometown, and he, and he knows that he needs something, and he breaks through this crowd 
and he gets to Jesus' feet, and he says, please, please, my son is about to die. And then Jesus answers him in a very bizarre way. Imagine your son is, is literally about to take his last breath, and you come to this miracle worker who you think will, will save him, and all of a sudden he, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I kind of taken aback. Like that was kind of a jerk thing to say. I mean, this, this, this father is obviously in pain. What, what is Jesus doing here? Well, this is one of those rare instances where the, um, where the original Greek language is like super, super helpful. Um, you can, as you're reading through your scripture, you have a lot of really, really smart people translating the original language, and they're really accurate on a lot of things. This is one of those things where they can't necessarily make it super clear with the um, English language without it sounding awkward. Um, so what happens is it says in verse 48, so Jesus said to him, which is a third person singular pronoun, like he, she, it, him, her, those are singular third person pronouns. But then you get to what Jesus actually says and that you there is actually plural. And so what he's doing is he, he, in his response to this singular person, he then looks to the crowd that's around him and he says, you all will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. He's not talking to this man in need. He's talking to the people that are following him for the wrong reasons. In one moment, he is fighting off the wolves that surround him. And in the next moment, he goes and he cares for the sheep. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies, thinking that Jesus had to come all the way back to his home and touch him or something. And then Jesus displays his godness, his power over all creation, power over time and distance. And he says, go, your son will live. And look at the man's response. It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. You see, too often in our church today, not necessarily Midlands, but the church um, in the West, we are faced with um, this deceptive teaching that unless you have signs and wonders, and unless you have these experiences, um, you are not truly saved. This is a, a doctrine that, that floats around many churches and many minds, even within this room. I, I personally have been uh, taught this, and it is a dangerous and deceitful doctrine. It is one that, that tells you if you're not able to, to speak in tongues or, or heal somebody's ailments, then you probably either don't have enough faith or you don't have the spirit living within you. And it's ironic. I, I was scrolling through Twitter um, and saw this. Uh, one of the churches that, that teaches this doctrine um, and call it like I see it, calling out 
Goats Bethel Church in Redding, California, has this room that they call the healing room. <laughs> and obviously, you know, the coronavirus is kind of spreading and it's spread already uh, a good bit in California. And so due to concern of the coronavirus, this healing room is closed. <laughs> like, do you not understand how idiotic that is? If you truly believe that you can perform these miracles and you can perform these healings and that's what you're going to teach the church, then why isn't it open? Why isn't it open to everybody? Why aren't you performing these signs and miracles? It's because they're seeking the wrong thing. They're, seek, they're seeking the things that the Galileans were seeking. They're, they don't want Christ and Christ alone. They're not going to believe Jesus at his word. It says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So what Jesus is doing here is very intentional. One, it displays his, his power as the Son of God. Another is it, it, it refutes and rebukes the people that are looking to see something, that are looking to, to see Jesus do one of his party tricks. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you all that. I'm not going to entertain you with that but I am going to heal this man's son. So go, your son will live. And in that instant, as soon as he spoke those words, that son was healed. It wasn't a progressive thing. It was all of a sudden, this ailment that was about to take this boy's life was gone. Why? Because Jesus is God. And it says, because of this, he himself believed and all his household. Now, that's a, that's a whole nother sermon to get into about uh, a man leading his home faithfully. Um, but because we're coming to the end of this sermon, we're not going to preach on that today. Um, but at the same time, this story is, again, forcing us to come to this decision. Are you going to believe or are you going to continue in your unbelief? We're forced to ask ourselves these questions. Why am I here this morning? Am I here for the community? Am I here for friends? Am I here for the band? Am I here for donuts? Am I here for just a, a fun time? Am I here for the preaching, or, or am I here because I know that I need Jesus, and I need him desperately? You see, the Samaritan woman and this official come to Jesus, 
and they interact with Jesus thinking they have one need, and Jesus sees right past it to their real need. Did you come in here this morning thinking that you had this need that needed to be met in your life, some pain that you're going through, something that you needed the Lord to to bring you out of? Is that why you're here this morning? If it is, I would encourage you not to, to come to him looking for a sign or a miracle, but come to him humbly like this man did and giving up this need saying, Lord, I can't do anything about this, but you can. And whether you do something about it or not, that's not what's going to make me believe upon you. The fact that you are God, the fact that you have made a way for me to be made right, to be justified, that is why I believe. And that is what true faith is. It takes Jesus at his word. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Are you here today and are you thinking that unless I see X, Y, or Z, there's no way I can believe upon this Christ? If that's you, then you fall into the, the category of the Galileans. But if that's not you, and, and you, you believe upon Christ for who he is and who he says that he is, who his word says that he is, then you are invited, like this man, into his fold of sheep. This shepherd who is going to fight off the false witnesses, who's going to fight off the wolves that try to distort his gospel, but is going to tenderly care for you and all of your pain. And each week we're, we're faced with this decision at Midlands. Um, one of the reasons why we do communion every week um, is because it reminds those who do come before the Lord in submission that you right now in this moment have no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Because of this, you take the, the bread that signifies his body that was broken for us, and you, and you take the juice that signifies the blood that was poured out for us, and you take it in faith. But then, for those of you who, who might not be there, we want you to, to interact with this, with these two options. Believe or continue in my unbelief. I want to leave you with this quote from John MacArthur. Uh, on this passage, actually. Jesus has come as the light of the world, but when man's unbelief rejects the light, their own darkness deepens. Today, you, if you are not yet in Christ Jesus, you are faced with this decision. Are you going to hear this story, hear God's word, and continue in your unbelief and only digging yourself deeper into your own darkness Are you going to believe and finally submit and finally let Jesus take your pain from you? No signs, no wonders needed, just trusting him in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son. 
Father, we thank you for giving us pains and struggles. Lord, we thank you that we understand, Lord, our need for you. And by your grace, may you lead us to your son. May we fall at his feet and may we give up all that we need. And Lord, may your will be done in any of those circumstances, Lord. Lord, may we have faith that is not rooted in signs and wonders, but Lord, faith that is rooted only in who you are and the word that you have given us. Father, I pray that the words that I spoke today, um, Lord, that they would um, be from you, um, and not only from you, but for you and your glory. Lord, any words that I said out of my own um, fruition and my own glory or anything like that, Lord, may you allow those words to be nullified. Father, we thank you for your spirit, and we pray that it will cause us all to believe deeper in your son. And we thank you for sending him, him to us. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.